This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the specialist agency that builds profile and helps grow business for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite business leaders with something to say into our kennel for a chat, and we ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. In this episode of The Dog and Bone, we return to the audio app Clubhouse for a conversation with BBC technology guru Rory Kettlin-Jones. Rory has met and interviewed tech giants like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk and Bill Gates, and he was there when Apple's Steve Jobs famously revealed the first iPhone in 2007. He's captured his experiences and reflections on the unrelenting march of tech in his new book, Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era, which is published in May. Dino Myers-Lamptey and I teamed up to fire questions at Rory and then opened it up to the audience in the virtual room. Rory, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you've got a book coming out, Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era. I'm about halfway through it because Bloomsbury, the publisher, very kindly gave me a, an uncorrected proof um, but tell us a bit about the book and why have you chosen to bring it out at this time? This book was born in the summer of 2019 when uh, I covered the launch of the first 5G network. And on the day I did that, I was live on Breakfast TV. Uh, it's the story which starts the book. Uh, broadcasting, I say it's a historic broadcast. We, we, we were the, as far as we can tell, we were the first television broadcast to, to, to use a 5G network to reach the nation. So we, were, we, we had a, a whole setup just off Covent Garden with a, a, a Huawei router on, on, on the roof of a, a van uh, using EE's new 5G network. And we went live into Breakfast TV. And during that broadcast, various people noticed something about me which was that my hand was shaking my right hand uh had a tremor um and that was because i'd been diagnosed a few months earlier with parkinson's disease but i hadn't gone public about it uh and, and after that broadcast a, a colleague that who i was working with on the 5g story that day said had i thought about going public about it um uh and she was pushing at an open door and I tweeted about the fact that I had, you know, some people have noticed this. Yes, I've, had, I've got Parkinson's, but, you know, I'm doing OK onwards and upwards. And the tweet had the most extraordinary reception. You know, it's one of the heartening things about social media, which is often disheartening. I had a great reception from it. And amongst the people who obviously saw it were the publishers Bloomsbury. And they came to me and asked if I thought about writing a book. Uh, and the book actually took shape over the, the following six months, the, the conversations with the publisher uh, before I signed a contract. Uh, and while Parkinson's features to some extent in the book, it's actually about my, it's kind of a reporter's notebook of an extraordinary era, the smartphone era, which begins in January 2007, uh, where Steve Jobs unveils the iPhone uh, on stage in San Francisco and I was there at that moment um, uh, filming that and putting it on the 10 o'clock news and later getting uh, fielding complaints on the BBC's complaint show Newswatch from people who said why were we plugging a product and I stuck my neck out on that 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 
uh, programme back in January 2007 and said uh, that might be a criticism of some launches, but this was probably a historic moment. Uh, I compared it slightly uh, bravely, to be honest, with Henry Ford launching the Model T Ford and said, you know, if the BBC had been around then, we should have given that 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 coverage. As I say, that was that was a slightly outrageous thing to say at that time, but I think it be, became true. Uh, and the book traces the this, what I call the smartphone social era, the the fact that smartphones, together with social networks, wrought this extraordinary change on our society. And there's a sort of story arc to the book. The first part is how that all unrolled over the space of about four or five years. Don't forget, um, Facebook born 2004, YouTube came along in 2005, Twitter 2006, then the iPhone in 2007. And those forces coalesced over the next four years, radically changed the way we communicated and have all sorts of impacts. So the first part of the book is about that, um, the, that sort of, the, the hope, the, the sort of excitement uh, and the transformation then there's the second part of the book where we go downhill, where the negative sides uh, of, of, of that become clear. The, uh, you know, the obsession with screens, uh, the abuse on Facebook, the hype around technology, the excessive hype. Uh, and we, we go downhill for a bit. And then the final part is written during the pandemic uh, and reflects how that period uh, has taught us both the negative and the positive sides of the technology. What's your own personal view of where we've sort of reached on the smartphone, the social smartphone era? Is it a sort of upwards trajectory from here or have we reached a plateau and we've all got to go back to reading books and, you know, sitting by log fires? We've certainly not reached a, a, a plateau. I, I, th I think it's, it's like, um, was it Cho Enlai said about the Chinese, revol uh, about, about the French Revolution? It's too early to tell. He said that uh, 200 years after. And I'm saying it's only been going just over a decade. You know, the, the smartphone, once, once I'd covered the smartphone, you know, editors would ask kind of what's next. And there hasn't, hasn't been a revolutionary device, a revolutionary technology on that scale since. I mean, all the revolutions that have come along have, have been part of the smartphone. So I think that's still playing out. The, the, the power of putting an incredibly powerful uh, computer in billions of people's pockets and seeing what they do with it um, continues to play out. And, you know, we continue to wrestle with the negative sides of that revolution and, and wise up about some of the impacts and, you know, do not wise up about others. So I think it's, it's still playing out. I, you mentioned Parkinson's and that very interesting opening chapter in the book and how, how you you, you brought it in while you were covering the, the 5G story. And I think uh, Dino is going to ask you a little bit about that part of your life in, in a minute. And um, one of the things I love about the book is how you do this kind of modern history of technology while weaving in your personal experiences and experiences as the, the BBC. Um, let's drill down on a couple of those actual sort of tales and anecdotes. You mentioned being at the launch of the first iPhone. Was, is, that the, that is, the, is that the biggest story you've covered or has there been... Um, something better you could share with us just to put that in context that that is that was an extraordinary event so 
and it came at a fascinating moment for, 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 for me in my career. So I, I, I was a business correspondent for many years for the BBC. And briefly in the late 90s, uh, I became obsessed with the sort of the, the, the dot-com explosion that was happening then and tried to, to devote most of my work to that. And briefly in the year 2000, in, in March 2000, the BBC said, oh, we're going to call you internet correspondent. And my wife, who's a very smart economist, said, oh, that's a sell signal. And the very day I was appointed internet correspondent, the, the bottom dropped out of the NASDAQ and um, the dot-com bubble burst. And three months later, an editor at the BBC said, oh, we're going to stop calling you internet correspondent. The internet's over. Go back to being a business correspondent. And I kept on covering technology stories despite that. Um, and then in 2007 beginning of 2007 they said oh the internet's back we're going to call you technology correspondent that's is that all right and I said yes fine that's great and to mark that in a way they sent me and a big BBC team to CES the first time we'd covered CES the annual gadget monster show in Las Vegas that happens every January and I said yeah we're going to CES I know we're spending a lot of money on that but I think we should duck out of Las Vegas for one day because Mac World is happening over in San Francisco. And that's, you know, that 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 could be really interesting. And I was proved right. And we had that extraordinary performance. I don't know. You could still watch it online. Um, the 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 Steve Jobs distortion field. I mean, he was a man who who delivered these these keynotes in in a very charismatic and unique way and has been much imitated by all sorts of other tech luminaries and they've never managed to quite crack it and he was on on pretty good form there and he, he started the whole event by saying we're going to make some history here today which as a British journalist I found slightly cloying uh set my teeth on edge you know you don't usually have cheering at a press conference but um or, or not in my experience but that was the first time i'd heard that because of course the, the the crowd was not just journalists it was employees and customers and crucially the the, the kind of the blogosphere around apple which was more of a sort of fan base than a sort of independent uh, critical mass at that time but there was an extraordinary atmosphere and um it was the only time that uh, I, I was running back from, from uh, uh the moscone center where the you know, the phone was unveiled to my hotel to try and file over the internet which was not an easy thing in those days when i got called by the news desk who were actually excited about a tech event they had seen pictures of the phone coming from agencies and they said wow you've got to have your hand on it uh and i i tell a story in 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 that chapter of how i did manage to get my hands on the phone for my report that evening which was was quite a challenge but yeah it i, I i've done you know i've I've met lots of tech giants i've met elon musk i've interviewed bill gates i've interviewed tim berners lee lots of times but for a single news event that that that's probably the summit what are these tech uh, billionaires like you know do they share a common a common gene that makes them marks them out for success um how have you found them in your analysis the, the the awful thing is that as somebody who is trying to create excitement and 
quotability from an interview with a, a tech luminary, most of them are pretty poor communicators. Um, you know, Jobs was unusual in, in that. Um, so uh, it, it's a bit of a sort of kind of cliche, but, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the first time I met him was in, actually the only time I met him face to face, he came to London and walked into the uh, room in the Excel center where we we're doing the interview. And he's the kind of guy who looks at his shoes rather than you, your face uh, and, you know, uh, seems at, at first sight to be pretty shy, um, not, not the liveliest of communicators, but actually I think he's got a lot better because he's been obviously media trained to do it better since then. Elon Musk was actually also out of a different mold from, from many of them, um, a, a better communicator. I spent three months um, pitching to do an interview with Elon Musk tied to CES because by, by, by sort of more recently, although we used to go to CES each year, every year editors would say, why are we doing this? Why should we bother? Uh, and I, I needed something else to sell a trip to CES. And I said, we're, we're going to interview Elon Musk. Who's that? And I explained who Elon Musk was. And they said, yeah, OK, you can go. But um, I sold the trip. Uh, and then th three months before the, 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 the trip, uh, and it wasn't until we were actually in Las Vegas that we got it confirmed that we could see Elon Musk and drove in a Tesla to L.A. to interview him. So there was an awful lot riding on that interview. And when we started the interview, he seemed quite sort of downbeat and restrained and sober. And I thought, I'm not sure this is going to fly. And then at one point he said, he used the phrase, when we are a multi-planet species. And I thought, yeah, we've got it here. Um, and he had all sorts of great lines um, uh, about how quickly autonomous driving would would come and how one day um, owning a, a car that you actually drove would be like owning a horse, um, something you did for fun, but not, not, you know, not the main way of driving. So that, that, that was fascinating and, and a rewarding interview. Excellent stuff. I've got one more kind of package of, of questions for, I know Dino's got a couple of questions for you. Um, so, you know, if, if, if um, Steve Jobs made history with the launch of the iPhone, and that that was got to be a, obviously a clear runaway success. You talk about a little bit in the book about the uh, the spinners, the hacks, and the hype. Tell us about some of the stories you've been sold that have turned out to be uh, not such great successes, if if we even remember them now. Well, I mean, the the, the prime one in that chapter, uh, which I devote quite a lot of time to, is a company called Spinvox. Um, which kind of, you know, lends itself to all sorts of headlines about spinning. Uh, I don't know if people remember Spinbox, but it was a, a great, it, it appeared to be a great British tech startup. And of course, we were all incredibly thirsty to find a British tech champion, and it appeared to be one. It was using, so it seemed, artificial intelligence to turn voicemails into text automatically at a time when you know voicemail was a thing and being able to turn it into text seemed to be a great service and it managed to, to sell this service and we featured it a lot and it seemed to be brilliant and then I got an email and it's it's kind of been a lesson to me ever since because I get so much email it's very easy to delete lots unread frankly 
luckily I didn't e- uh, delete this one. It was from an insider at Spinvox who told me that uh, I should look more closely at it, that uh, its technology was not what it claimed to be. And, and in, instead of using artificial intelligence, machine learning techniques to translate these, uh, these voicemails, it was using people in call centers uh, all around the world, which had various implications. Uh, one, that it had obviously been misleading its investors in particular about its technology and its users. So there, uh, 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 two, that there were sort of privacy implications because your, your potentially incredibly sensitive messages were being listened to by call center workers and stored on their systems outside Europe, which was pretty dodgy. And then of course, it meant that the, the finances of the company were incredibly questionable because if you're telling your investors that you're building uh, an autonomous system uh, and actually you're hiring at great expense thousands of people to type things out, that's eventually going to come home to roost, which it did. So that was a story that I was kind of obsessed with with quite a while. And there was a lot of pushback from one particular member of the London tech community accused me of being, you know, uh, trying to, knock down a, a great British success story and being a misogynist because the, the 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 leader of the company was a woman called uh, Christina Demeck. I think eventually the story, you know, was was validated because the company had to be sold, was bought by a much bigger business, a business called Nuance. Uh, and the investors got 600 quid. And that was 600 quid between all of them, not, not, not each. So, um, yeah quite an interesting story so Dino do you want to uh, got a couple of questions for Rory yeah thank you Martin and I'd like to just talk a little bit about what you talked about earlier on actually which was your diagnosis with Parkinson's I would like to ask you about what excites you at the moment in terms of this intersection between health and technology you know particularly with Parkinson's and what's happening there but with other technology and and health and the two things coming together and where you see it going there's a great quote which I use in the book um from from Peter Thiel, which uh, about this whole smartphone era and the, the revolution, where he says we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters, which uh, of course was was the, the used to be the limit of Twitter. In other words, you know this is a revolution which seems to be great, but actually is about quite trivial thing. And I, in the final section of the book, I I say, but the hope is that it could be about more important things than uh, tweets and Facebook posts and uh, staring at your phone. It could actually, the the combination of this technology and in in particular, the arrival of advanced artificial intelligence techniques could, could have quite an impact on healthcare. Just before I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, I visited a company in London called Meadowpad that was trying to develop an app in conjunction with the the Chinese firm Tencent, the AI company, uh, the the big tech company which is investing in AI. Uh, They they were looking at ways of using AI to diagnose Parkinson's and to monitor it. I mean, the thing about Parkinson's is it's, it's, uh, it's incurable. Um, There is they're not real ways of slowing it. They're ways of alleviating the symptoms. 
and it is it is also pretty difficult to 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 diagnose accurately and to monitor accurately uh, but there are various apps coming along that that, that claim to do this so th this particular app that i went to see in this london medical company involved i i got there and i found um a camera that uh, they, they had it in front of the camera one of the chinese employees of tencent uh opening and closing his fingers on his right hand rapidly in front of the the camera and this was going to be fed into the sort of the brain of the system uh as a way of measuring you know uh, what is uh what is parkinson's and what is not um because one of the i'm 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 sitting here now. You can't see me trying to open and close my right hand, uh, as I was on that day when I went to film because I was thinking about this. Uh, it's one of the symptoms of of Parkinson's that your movements become jerkier and and, and less uh, less controlled. Uh, and as I sat there filming this, not knowing, having some suspicions that I might have Parkinson's, but not having been diagnosed yet, I thought, hmm. I wonder if that's me. Maybe I should be filmed, but I wasn't on that occasion. But since then, I've got involved with other companies looking at just that. You're looking at using apps to monitor um, symptoms and to provide, you know, a, a, a more constant flow of information about a condition such as Parkinson's. There's, there are people developing um, kind of smart watches that, that uh, people wear to to monitor their movements uh, and their, you know, the, the whole data revolution is key to this, getting enough data about every stage of the disease to be able to understand it better. So that that's one aspect. And the, of course, the other aspect is the much bigger mission of potentially developing drugs that would um, help with this and other conditions. Uh, and there, the, the big hope is that drug discovery, the incredibly tortuous and lengthy and expensive process of uh, investigating various compounds to, to, to find out whether they, they might make a difference, could be really accelerated by machine learning techniques. So that's just some of the areas which uh, I'm quite hopeful about. Thank you. My quick question to you is, how should parents raise their kids with technology these days? Oh, God, that's a big one. Um, I, I, I talk in the book about this concern uh, that lots of people have about screen time in particular. Um, and I, I, it is obviously a concern that, you know, these devices are addictive, that they have dangers. Um, uh, they they can distract from uh, other healthier forms of lifestyle. We had the education secretary, I noticed Gavin Williamson calling for a ban on smartphones in schools. I tend to be a glass half full person. I think you, the important thing is to, to know the technology, to understand the technology, to be with your kids on their journey with this technology as much as you can. Um, but I, I tend to be less paranoid than, than many about it. Um, I interviewed in, 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 in the book, uh, there's a chapter about this and there are, there are two voices saying, beware, beware. But the most impressive person I interviewed about this was a woman called Amy Auburn, who's both 
young enough to be part of the iPhone era. She's in her mid-20s, but also an academic at Cambridge University studying the impact of screens on, on, on children. And she's very clear that the, the, the data is pretty, is much less clear than, than some of the more excitable people say about the negative impacts uh, of screens on, on children. And, and it's easy to, to neglect the, the positives that, for instance, you know, she cites the the idea of you know uh, gay teenagers in a sort of remote town uh, now having you know access to um, help and you know like-minded people which they wouldn't have had 20 30 years ago you're listening to the dog and bone podcast from propeller group if you're enjoying this episode please share with your network on linkedin subscribe through your podcast provider and if you have any suggestions please write a review and let us know them with your comments now back to the conversation thank you um at this point i'd like to introduce dave thank you for waiting patiently on stage dave birch please uh unmute and fire away your question rory um i because you're taking this quite wide perspective one thing i'm sort of curious about is whether you think we're stuck in a sort of etiquette gap you know we have these new social channels but we we haven't yet sort of learned the etiquette of how to use them just, just like people had to learn how to use the telephone all those years ago or, or do you think something fundamental has changed because of because of this always onness well i think something always changed when, when a, a new communications technology you know right back from the telegraph uh to, through radio and tv always changes things to some extent but I, but I think what's been interesting is how uh, a young, the generation that's grown up with this world, we, we often, we worry a lot about them. In some ways, they are more cautious. They, are, they, they, they began to think about sharing in a way sooner than some of their parents. I think, I think you know, 25 to 35 year olds maybe or 25 to 40 year olds perhaps maybe less adept than you know 15 year olds at, at managing their their online presence in some ways when i was growing up the moral panic was about television you know the, the whole why don't you go outside and do something more useful instead social media smartphones are far more are, are both you know in some ways more dangerous they're more immersive but they're also more creative and more interactive than television. Thank you, Dave, for your question. Uh, I'd like to introduce Mike Butcher next. Please unmute and ask your question to Rory. <laughs> Hello, Rory. Hands across the digital ocean and all that. Rory, um, it's appropriate that I'm walking down the street in Shoreditch at this very moment in time. You were uh, an observer, as, as, as was I, to the kind of you know, Silicon roundabout uh, boom of about sort of five, ten years ago. And, uh, we all had a lot of fun running around at the startups of, uh, of that era. What are some of your memories and uh, the things you took away from that era? And, uh, let's hear about uh, if you bumped into Jennifer Curry or not. <laughs> Jennifer Curry. Now, there, now there's a name to conjure with. I have to say, uh, I didn't bump into her at the time, but I have had the odd engagement with her on Twitter over the last few months because whatever else she was doing she was also uh promoting extraordinary conspiracy theories about trump's uh 
election quotes victory, which she uh, claimed in late December was bound to be uh, vindicated uh, a few months later. She's gone quite quiet about that. No, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't remember Jennifer Arcuri. What I remember about Shoreditch and that, that whole Tech City thing was a, a kind of a feeling of frustration on my part that there was an awful lot of hype around not much for quite a while. Uh, that what we were seeing was a lot of web designers, a lot of kind of quite small scale, not particularly high tech things. And I, I was slightly obsessed at that period with the fact that actually the real tech center of the UK was, was Cambridge, which I'd been following and, you know, was quite closely in, involved with for many years. Uh, and if you looked at the, the big tech companies that came out of the UK, the, the three billion dollar companies that came out were at that time uh, Autonomy, Arm uh, and Cambridge Silicon Radio, uh, all of them, you know, based in Cambridge. Um, and, and I felt that that was where more of the action is. Uh, now, since then, I think what's, what's happened is that actually um, Cambridge and London are sort of fused and lots of companies that start with with good good tech in, in Cambridge move to London to sort of promote themselves. And it, it has got a sort of there's a sort of healthier interaction there and there's a bit more real to it. Um, but my main, main feeling is a feeling is somewhat you know, some disappointment in uh, how few, you know, world-beating companies we've actually generated in London. But then that that is the case for everywhere outside Silicon Valley. Everybody wants to be Silicon Valley. Everyone wants the secret of being Silicon Valley. And nobody else has quite cracked it. And that is mainly because Silicon Valley's history but the sheer volume of capital available there compared with anywhere else. If, if there's one company that is a, a world-beating company that's created in Britain over the last 30 years, is Arm, uh, the chip designer. It'd be interesting to think if, if it had retained its independence and, and a bid had come along now. So don't forget, the bid from SoftBank for Arm came along in 2016, just after the EU referendum. Uh, which made effectively made Arm a bit cheaper than it would have otherwise been. Or SoftBank still came in with a very high price. And it was welcomed by the government as, you know, vindication of the UK as a place to invest in. Uh, I think more recently, with Arm now being, you know, sold on to N NVIDIA, um, people within government are asking, you know, sh was that something that we should have, uh, stop. If you've got an attitude, which there has been in the UK and in many countries for the last 30 years, that ownership doesn't matter. It's, it's you know, it's uh, as long as you've got uh, jobs and in investment happening here, it doesn't matter who own owns it, then you shouldn't be worried. But I think we are beginning to think, think that every now and then ownership does matter. Uh, and if there is to be this which there is at the moment, this giant contest between the the US and China, um, it might be good just to have a few assets of our own to, to you know, maintain our independence. But Rory, uh, I've, got a, I've got one supplementary and then I'll shut up and let other people talk, which was 
that uh, Spotify, uh, Spotify was kind of basically built, born in London, wasn't it? Because Daniel that, Eck. Daniel that's Eck. true. Can I so tell you my Spotify a, story? Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. So very early on, there was some tech event, a typical sort of pre-Christmas, you know, pitching event that I went along to and there were various sort of nondescript businesses there and this guy came up to me he said he's called Shaq um and he said listen I'm involved in this business uh that you're gonna love and yeah 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 and he said listen give it a go over the weekend I'll give you a a, a code to have a go at it if you don't like it I promise I'll come and wash your car for you. And that was such a good pitch that um, I went home and I tried it uh, and it was called Spotify. And I came back to him and said, actually, I do like it. You don't need to wash my car, car for me. Um, and that, that, that was a, a, a brilliant business and, you know, has gone on to, to great things and was a kind of marker that, you know, London was a good place uh, compared with the rest of Europe for, for starting a tech business. Rory, another question. Um, you touched on it earlier on and your role at the BBC. What's it like kind of getting a tech story on the main BBC news for the 10 or the six, as I know you, you, you call it? Is it is, do you have to somehow dumb, dumb down or, or, or more than you would like to get it past your news editors or have they all seen the light that they know that your stuff is good stuff? My, my job has always been trying to reach big audiences with complex stories, whether it was as a business correspondent or now as a technology correspondent. I'm quite proud of a couple of pieces I've done over the years that have got onto the 10 o'clock news very early on, before people knew about cloud computing. I did a whole piece about cloud computing, which got onto the 10 o'clock news, trying to explain that concept. Uh, and a couple of years ago, similarly, I got a piece about quantum computing on. And I challenge anyone to explain quantum computing uh, in two and a half minutes to a mass audience. And that, that is part of the joys and the difficulties of the job. Uh, it's, it's much more challenging to, to, to do something in two and a half minutes than to do something in, in a thousand, two thousand words. Uh, actually, the, there's a funny story behind that, that quantum computing piece, because uh, it, it involved a trip to Copenhagen to see uh, Microsoft's lab there, which thought they'd made a discovery, although they later had to withdraw that. Uh, and they flew in all sorts of Microsoft specialists from around the world to take part in this filming. Um, and then the piece was actually shown on Gogglebox. Uh, and the main comment they had from one of the families on Gogglebox was, what the fuck? Afterwards, the, the very good PR guy from Microsoft called me up and he said, I'm trying to work out how I explain to Seattle what Gogglebox is because they're just not going to understand it. You know, the, the, it was two different worlds colliding there. You mentioned uh, the Microsoft PR guy. That was going to be my segues in quite nicely because obviously myself, my company, Propeller Group, we're from a PR persuasion working for a range of tech-related advertising, media, marketing-type clients. What do you look for when you get an approach from a PR person? Do you, is there a certain style that they should adopt? Or is it, is there, uh, do you have a shield which comes down um, when they ring you up? Actually, I don't, I, I don't mind phone calls from people who are um, 
you know, that I've established a relationship with and, you know, a relationship of trust. The, the 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 problem from my point of view with the PR industry is that it, there's a huge spectrum. Uh, it's 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 huge these days. And if I analyse my inbox each day, I get 300 emails, and 95% of the PR emails are terribly targeted. They are from people who, for instance, assume that the BBC might want an authored article by some executive they represent on the BBC website. They've clearly never read the BBC website uh, and, and, and have no idea of how it works. Um, but at, at the good end of the spectrum, and I, to be honest, I, I prefer dealing with in-house PRs rather than agencies. There are good agency people, obviously. There are people at the uh, good end of the spectrum who, who, who know exactly what to sell and what not to sell. So... Uh, my advice would be to have a look at the kind of output that you are targeting a story at. Think of stories they've done before uh, and ask yourself, how would this story play in that, in, in that context? And give a short, punchy summary of what it is you're offering right at the top of the email. And if it's you're offering an article by an executive for inclusion on the BBC website, give up and stop wasting my time. We've done an hour and we haven't even mentioned or no one's asked a question about NFTs. <laughs> and I suspect uh, if I was going to bet on this, I suspect they weren't covered in your book originally. Have you found a way of shoehorning them in now? Uh, no, because the NFT phenomenon has only been new. I, I, I completely finished the book in uh, November last year. Uh, there have been, you know, proofreadings and so on and so on. But um, no, there is a whole chapter, though, about cryptocurrency, uh, which is and people who, who, who know me won't be surprised. Uh, it, it starts with the tale of how uh, a, a huge scoop, which went terribly wrong um, when I was given uh, the chance to meet the real Satoshi Nakamoto whose story became more and more complex and difficult to uh, verify. Uh, and that, that chapter is a journey into complete cynicism about everything around cryptocurrency, the, the, the hype, the, the most ridiculous hype about that, about blockchain. Uh, and, and when it comes to NFTs, I don't cover them in the book, but I've been doing quite a bit of writing and broadcasting about them lately they do strike me as you know the ultimate expression of that kind of crypto craziness uh, where you know um believing something is incredibly important and valuable becomes a, a substitute for for making it so so i am i'm a bear on nfts and uh, interestingly the, the bottom seems to be falling out of the market already with them. You, you, you passed an opinion there on NFTs. How do you balance being a uh, an impartial journalist for the BBC and being a, a sort of opinion former and uh, thought leader in your own right, which of course you are? I notice on Twitter you have a BBC handle and um, you have the um, the personal handle, the, the, the enigmatic 
Ruskin 147. I, I've always wondered why is it Ruskin? Are you a great fan of Victorian polymaths who can make a maximum break at snooker or what? Good question. I'll tell you the reason. I was an early adopter of Twitter and joined it in 2007 and didn't realise, you know, the importance of a handle. And I just used something that I'd used before. I was born at 147 Ruskin Park House, uh, a block of flats in South London. Uh, and that's where that comes from. Well, it's now, do... now we know the story. John okay, Ruskin. no, thanks for that. But what about the personal opinion versus the impartial BBC reporter? How do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, it, it is something any BBC journalist tangles with. I mean, it, it, it's in your DNA to say, to be very much on the one hand, on the other. But we are also paid as specialists to to make judgment calls so making a judgment call about whether cryptocurrency is an amazingly positive phenomenon or not i think is part of the job although in my in our broadcasting you know i we've obviously interviewed any piece i've done has interviewed people who are enthusiasts as well as people who are negative about it it is you know it's it's uh, it's a difficult line to tread but um we we try to do our best in, in in treading that line i mean if you look at the bbc's um brilliant health correspondents people like fergus walsh and the health editor hugh pym they managed to uh, give you information give you um judgments you know a vaccine is safe etc etc without uh, I hope, without well, I believe, being biased, although they or 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 not impartial, although they will always we all face these accusations all the time. For years, I was accused of being a Microsoft shill, uh, and then an Apple shill, and you know, and so on and so forth. I think I could probably bring things to a close, and on behalf of Dino and myself and the others in the in the room and who ask questions. Um, Rory Clefton Jones, thanks for being a wonderful guest on our clubhouse room this evening. And uh, good luck with the book. We'll all we'll all go out and rush out and get a copy. And hope to see you on here again pretty soon. Thank you very much and bye bye. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for joining us on the Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog, or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.